1: Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Buttonwood columnist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up in the show, Ukraine's finance minister joins us to discuss the beleaguered country's reform programme.
2: Where can you find even a minute to say, listen, oh, we're really, you know, we have time now to relax. I don't see it in my life.
1: And how, on the inside, banks are starting to look more like software companies. They are are concentrating very very hard on getting products out very quickly so you get a team
3: together within a few days you get a prototype together within 6 weeks you're meant to have a product ready for the customer's hands within within 9 months. But
2: first. till Alfred Nobels minne för år till Richard H.
1: Thaler." This week, the economist Richard Thaler was announced as the winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Economics. Mr. Thaler was given the award for his contribution to behavioral economics, a field that explores how psychology affects economic decision making. We interviewed Mr. Thaler last year on The Economist Asks, and here's a little clip from that.
3: Sure, there may be some Larry Summers or Joe Stiglitz among the people being nudged, but they can ignore it. And the rest of us probably need a little help in figuring out how much we need to save for retirement and what would be the best
1: way to do it. Ryan Avent, our free exchange columnist, is writing about him in this week's issue and is on the line from Washington. Ryan, Mr. Thaler's best known for the nudge theory. Could we explain that? So the the upshot of a lot of Richard Thaler's work is
0: that people uh, make decisions as best they can given cognitive limitations, which is not what most economists generally assume. They kind of assume that, to some extent, people are, are somewhat superhuman and have better information than anyone could have and are more rational and calculating than anyone actually is. Uh, and Thaler showed in a lot of different ways that people use different heuristics or, or kind of rules of thumb to make decisions. And in, in particular, um, they, are, they often make decisions based on some sort of reference point that, that, that is set uh, in their minds uh, that, that can be suggested to them or that is, is perhaps um, you know, based on an experience they've had uh, in the past. So if they buy a stock, the sort of place where they buy uh, is a reference point in their mind and they're going to be reluctant to sell uh, while the price is below that because they don't want to lock in that loss. Uh, what nudge theory is all about is essentially using those sorts of reference points to kind of encourage people to make better decisions without actually limiting their choice. So a simple way to to talk about it is to look at at, at uh, contributions to pension plans. It had normally been the case before Thaler's work that um, the default would be that people are not enrolled in pension plans. That would be sort of the reference point, and they would have to use their own uh, their own willpower to kind of get themselves to enroll in it. Uh, nudge theory simply said, well, if you make it so that the default is that people are opted in um, and that's the reference point, that's the status quo, um, then they'll be much more likely to, to stay in and, and to save more. And, and of course, that, that ended up happening.
1: Britain has done that, of course. I'm just interested, if has the theory been applied in America very much where there is a nudge unit, isn't there? So the book Nudge
0: that Richard Thaler wrote was co-written with Cass Sunstein. And Cass Sunstein was uh, for a while a, an advisor in the White House to President Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama asked people in the White House to, to uh, consider seeing how these techniques could be used to improve regulatory policy and other things. That was sort of a short-lived experiment. It, I believe it went out the door with him. There's been more of a permanent institutional change in the UK where they had the Nudge Unit there, which has since been turned into a public-private partnership, but which continues to kind of study ways to, uh, to help people make better
1: choices. Yeah, I think one of the things they do is to I'm not sure it's in the US or the UK, is to write to people to tell them that their neighbors tend to pay their taxes on time. And this has been shown to encourage people to pay their own taxes on time. Is that right?
0: That's exactly right. And that's another example of sort of setting a reference point in a way that makes people think, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. That way of reframing the issue makes it easier for people to sort of exercise the willpower they need to to behave in a particular way.
1: Now, as good journalists, we'll know that uh, three things define a trend. So we've had Daniel Kahneman win the prize. We've had Robert Schiller win the prize and now Thaler. So do you think that behavioural economics is now mainstream thinking as far as the sector is concerned? Well, the Nobel Committee surely seems to think so.
0: No, I I think actually it, it really has become quite mainstream to the point where it's almost not clear that we that we really need to continue to have a behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is really just economics. Uh, and I guess what I mean by that is that for a long time, economists really were engaged in this project of trying to, to be a bit like physicists and to say, well, if we have a few simple rules for how people behave, uh, then we can build these models of the economy that work really well. Uh, what the behavioral economists showed is that those simple rules just fail in lots of ways, systematically. And so this kind of project, uh, at least given what we know about people now, is not going to be possible. What people are really doing now, to an increasing extent, is going to the data saying, here's a very specific policy question, let's see what humans do, and let's see what the data shows us, rather than saying, we're going to build grand theories of human behavior. So. It's been really influential science, uh, almost to the point where it's made itself uh, obsolete.
1: And uh, interestingly, economists are studying sort of real world problems, right? So the free economic stuff, you know, people are getting into the weeds and looking at the minutiae of how individual policies work and how people react.
0: That's right. And uh, in a lot of very useful ways. And I think we've seen some some really good examples of this over the last few years, where people are very focused on you know, what do particular programs that try to improve access to good schools do? Or what happens when uh, a particular city faces an increase in, in you know, Chinese import penetration? And the really kind of targeted questions that economists are asking you know, in the hopes of contributing some useful knowledge rather than just some elegant, you know, mathematics in a paper.
1: Thank you very much, Ryan. Well, if you have any thoughts about behavioural economics, get in touch. Indeed, in the spirit of Mr Thaler, most people that you know have probably got in touch with The Economist about our podcast. So please contact us via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at com. Next. After the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the outbreak of a Russian-backed insurgency in eastern regions, Ukraine fell into a recession. It was rescued by the IMF and has now largely stabilised, even starting to issue bonds again on the international markets. So does the future look promising, and what hurdles are there still to overcome? Callum Williams, our Britain economics correspondent, sat down with Alexander daniel Ukraine's finance minister. He started by asking about the biggest reform achievements the government has made to Ukraine's economy in the past few
2: years. Last week we adopted the pension reform. Uh, It's actually custom designed for, for Ukraine. To address not only the, the deficit, but also the uh, long-term social sustainability. If you ask a year ago, people didn't believe that we will ever be able to do this. This actually just restores the trust <laughs> that this government you know, is able to pass a very difficult reforms. Uh, second is uh, cleaning up of the banking system. Uh, around ninety banks were moved, uh, you know, removed from the market because they were not feasible. And a part of this um, banking sector cleanup was nationalisation of uh, of private bank.
4: So one of the criticisms of the of the pension reform is that the methods that have been used to to reach the final agreement were somewhat different from what had been agreed with um, the IMF. And many of the recommendations are not going to come in force until after the presidential elections in twenty nineteen. What would you say in response to those two? Uh, particular criticisms which essentially say that the pension reform has been somewhat watered down from what was intended at first?
2: That's not the case. We drafted this reform together with uh, Minister Finance, Ministry of Social Affairs, uh, but uh, we work together with IMF and World Bank. So the IMF are
4: totally on board with this, this a, reform? This
2: is a joint product, right? Uh, the work uh, some amendments propose, well, not that many, You know, 2,142 amendments between first and second reading. So obviously some of these amendments could have been very harmful. And IMF just highlighted that, that we have concerns about this, this, and this. By the way, we also had concerns about mm. this. During the final adoption, uh, we managed to neutralize such amendments. They, they were not included into the law. And I believe we now have uh, a pension reform which is fully compatible. Is
4: there a particular part of the reform agenda that you think is going too slowly?
2: Uh, Yes. One uh, which is especially harmful is reforming the law enforcement uh, system. You know, we're building a market economy for the last 26 years. We're improving the market condition, boosting competitions, you know, improving business climate. Uh, But the law enforcement remained in 20th century. It's a Soviet system when actually the doing business sounds uh, dodgy. People don't get that actually business pay taxes, business uh, create employment, and we as a government should do everything possible to support businesses. And that is, cannot be done just overnight, saying like, we, you know, now we, uh, we, lo- we love business. People need to change these institutions, their mandate needs to change, mm-hmm. and all overlap between the existing institution also needs to be eliminated. Our plan is to introduce the new law enforcement, Uh, financial police, very compact, effective institution. They will fight the economic crimes against the state, but also they will not harass the business.
4: And what about the status of the special anti-corruption courts that uh, the president has been talking about in in recent years? Do you have a sense of when these uh, courts are going to actually be functional, day-to-day courts that are prosecuting people and
2: taking cases and so on? Do you have a sense of date? The plan is to launch it next year. It's very important, like financial police, we're planning to do it from scratch, hire new people. Same with National Anti-Corruption Bureau, which we, we adopted the law in 2014 and took us approximately one, one and a half years to launch a new institution, which is very effective now. It, uh, the key focus is to investigate anti-corruption crimes uh, at a high level but the key thing is in order to complete it these cases needs to be judged so the country is still in the
4: middle of a, a program a funding program with the international monetary fund what uh, do you mean still is we're well, planning
2: to co- complete it by the end okay two thousand eighteen. So this well, is that, our plan
4: that leads me to my next question in that case what's the ne- what's the need to tap private markets because a couple of weeks ago you Issued a bond, yes. and I think some. I mean, some people certainly are saying, you know, why does Ukraine need to tap private markets if it's already got a funding arrangement with the IMF?
2: Oh, because they are totally different. These sources, right? The money that we receive from IMF the tranches, they go to support our currency. Mm-hmm. They go to the national bank reserves, mm-hmm. right? And the the bonds that we place on the market, they go to finance the budget, mm-hmm. budget deficit, and so uh, actually. This bond issue was fully um, envisaged by the program. Uh, by the way, next uh, two years, uh, we have in the program uh, some benchmarks that next year will raise uh, 2 billion, and year after, not 2 billion. In
4: private markets? In
2: private markets. So by the end of the program, we need to be present actively in the market, and we need to raise some additional um, capital. Why? It's because this program was structured moving from point A to B. In 2018, we need to be self-sufficient, uh, right? We need to be a very, very strong, uh, you know, growing economy and uh, stable financial system. Mm-hmm. And being on the markets is essential part of it. I suppose
4: the, the criticism that has been uh, levied at, at Ukraine is that now that the economy is quite stable, you know, you're running a budget surplus, your current account is looking pretty good, GDP growth is pretty good. You're able now to, in a sense, ignore the recommendations of the the IMF and go to private markets instead. And the, and the fears, I think, is that the sort of momentum behind reform has has slowed down as a as a result of that.
2: Can I tell that this is very artificial? We own the reform agenda. We're driving the country forward. IMF supports us. It's a joint program, right? So they support the reforms that we're doing, and some other reforms, by the way, which are not in the program, like healthcare reform, which we're going to launch next week. Mm-hmm. And if we're progressing within this agenda, it means that we're within IMF program. If we don't do reforms, then somehow we're not in IMF, right? Right. But we also stop doing reforms. And this is where the government cannot afford this because people expect us to change the country. September already just finished, so what we had? Education reform and pension reform passed. And by the way, changes to the judiciary reform. For one month, three reforms that other countries actually adopting years and at the same time, we're working on the budget, amending the uh, some other laws which are crucially uh, important, including for the reintegration of the uh, Donbass region. So right. this is yeah. a lot yeah. on the table. So I'm just wondering, where can you find even a minute to say, listen, oh, we're really, you know, we have time now to relax. I don't see it in my life.
4: So with all these reforms that you've outlined in, in, in detail, I mean, are there kind of internal forces within Ukraine? Are there, are there internal factions that are... Presumably, feel quite threatened by this, and will try their best to to slow down these reforms, right? I mean, what what are they trying to do at the moment?
2: Mm-hmm, they're trying to slow it down. Uh, we uh, initiated the changes to the VAT administration, refund administration. When you
4: export stuff and you get a VAT refund, yes, right? exactly. Yeah, okay, VAT yeah.
2: refunds was the like uh, number one area for corruption in the state fiscal service.
4: This would be the idea where you'd pretend to export something, no, no, and actually, then claim back the VAT.
2: Uh, actually, you you yeah, there are two parts. First is the company that really exports that uh, they want to g- get the VAT refund. And they couldn't do it because it was uh, delayed for months, 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 right? And uh, only those who uh, either, you know, have some special entrance or agree to pay would receive the refund. And that was the reality for so many years. In, in, in January, we introduced a transparent uh, VAT registered on our website. And then ex- another example that you mentioned is that some fake VAT. The first... VAT refunds, it's money stolen from the business. The fake VAT is the money stolen from the budget. But both are very bad for the business climate and for the financial system. Right? So we address these two. First is the VAT refunds, we introduced new system in uh, January, February, February. and uh, a special system that fights fake VAT, we introduced uh, in July. So. Now, these measures saved billions for the business and for the budget. Obviously somebody lost this money, so they're trying through the parliament uh, to, to fight it back using some uh, strange excuses that we need to support business. There is a very strong position of our ministry from the prime minister, from the business association saying, you know, we will not allow you know, reversing on, on the path of reforms. We as a country need to move forward, we cannot afford. Wasting the time on the revision of the already taken uh, steps, we need to move forward. Then we will be successful.
4: OK, Minister, thank you very much for talking to us this
1: afternoon.
2: Thank you very much. Alexander Luke and Callum Williams there.
1: Finally,
3: the Barclays Mobile Banking App.
0: The Santander app lets you bank.
3: Fast balance on your mobile from HSBC.
1: Mobile and internet banking are steadily usurping the services of physical branches, as banks, like most other services, adapt to the digital age. But some banks are transforming more than their competitors. So is it paying off? Our banking editor, Patrick Lane, is here to discuss. So, Patrick, your piece in this week's issue focuses on the Spanish bank, BBVA.
3: Why? Well, Phil, BBVA talks an awful lot about its digital transformation and it has done for some years. So I thought it was a bank that would be worth looking at a bit more closely. It's led by a man called Francisco Gonzalez Rodriguez, who's been the executive chairman of the bank since it was formed in a merger in around 1999 or 2000. And he was a computer programmer by, by trade before he ever entered the financial services world. A lot of people near the top of the bank are you might say, primarily uh, computer people or software people rather than bankers. Um, And the way in which they've tried to Reorganise themselves, not just in in terms of the products they present to customers, but also the way they organise themselves inside the bank, is 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 really quite interesting. They were quite early to do it,
1: and are they at the forefront of digital adoption, or are there even wizzier banks in the US which are ahead of them?
3: There are certainly wizzier banks because there, there's a whole crop of banks, um, partly in the US, but perhaps more so in Europe, which were born digital. So there's there's a lot of banks in this country. There are a few in Germany, which uh, have been digital from the outset and have completely dispensed with branches. BBVA was pretty early, certainly, to start transforming itself digitally, both with its internal processes and the way it thinks about producing new products. It's certainly not the only one. I mean, there are there are others. Uh, ING, which is a Dutch bank, is talked about quite a lot. So is Commerzbank in, in Germany. So are various others. BBVA seems to walk the walk better than most.
1: And does it pay off? I mean, in other industries, we've seen every business move to online services, and yet the price falls along with their cost base. Is BBVA profiting from this change? Eventually,
3: all this investment and all the ways in which it's reorganising itself uh, have to come through either in Lower costs, or higher revenues, or lower risk. There's some evidence on the cost side because if you look at its cost-income ratio, it's a little bit—it's it, it, lower, clearly lower than, than that of the other leading Spanish banks, but not so spectacularly lower that you'd say it's all done and dusted. On the revenue side, you're seeing products that are beginning to come through that people are using. For example, there's a little sort of insurance product you can buy in Colombia if you take money out of a out of a cash machine there, which insures you against being robbed for the next few hours. But of course, that only brings in a few cents a time. They are concentrating very, very hard on getting products out very quickly. So you get a team together within a few days, you get a prototype together within six weeks, you're meant to have a product ready for the customer's hands within, within nine months. You can't do absolutely everything at that speed, of course. But it seems to be taking time to come through into revenues. And that could be because it's early days yet. When you talk to analysts about the bank, they are very impressed with what they're doing on the technical side. But they do want to see more evidence
1: that it's coming through into revenue. Thank you very much, Patrick. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. I'm Philip Coggan. In London, this is The Economist.
4: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.